Well, if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles out with me this morning. Let's open them up to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis in chapter 25. Genesis 25. Last Sunday night, we uh, came back to the book of Genesis after many months in Romans 3 and 4. And uh, for the rest of this year, we will be looking at the account of the descendants of Isaac, in particular Esau and primarily Jacob. This morning we pick up in Genesis 25. We're going to begin reading in verse 19. We're just going to look at three verses, uh, or four verses, uh, three verses, verses 19 through 21. So uh, let's begin reading in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 19 brings us to a new section in the book of Genesis. Uh, As we were reminded last Sunday night, the book of Genesis consists of an introduction and then ten sections. Some that are really short, some that are very long. Each section in Genesis begins with the same phrase. These are the generations of, or something very similar. This is the book of the generations of. And last Sunday evening, we looked at what could be called section 7, which is just verses 12 through 18 concerning Ishmael and Ishmael's descendants. And now we come to section 8 of the book of Genesis, which focuses on Isaac and his descendants, particularly his son Jacob. Um, This particular section of Genesis consists of ten and a half chapters. It goes from this point in Genesis 25 through Genesis 35. And so these ten chapters will be where we are going to be dwelling uh, throughout the rest of 2011. Uh, In this section of scripture we learn about a number of interesting people. Uh, We will see sinners being sinners And we will see God being God. Uh, In these ten chapters, there are lots of of important truths for us to to take hold of and to to bring into our own lives. Uh, God's character is on display in these ten chapters. Uh, Themes concerning salvation, especially the theme of grace and the theme of faith, uh, are going to be very apparent in these ten chapters. Uh, We're going to learn a lot about the family and, in particular, many lessons of what not to do uh, from the examples that we see in these ten chapters. Uh, In the end, we will see, I hope, how awesome uh, the mercy of God is towards uh, sinners like you and me. Uh, When this study is done, I hope that our hearts will will have fallen even more in love with, with our Creator, with our Sustainer, with the Savior of our souls. Um... Jesus is in these chapters. Uh, The gospel is in these chapters. So be alert, be be humble. Uh, As we come together to look at these chapters, let's picture ourselves sitting at the feet of our Savior uh, as He teaches us from His Word. Now as we come to verses 19 and 20, we simply are reminded 
of what we already know concerning this man named Isaac. Namely, he is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. Uh, He's not Abraham's only biological son. He is the only son that Abraham had with his wife, Sarah. Isaac is the son born by the miraculous power of God. When both Abraham and Sarah were beyond normal childbearing age, God has promised a great kingdom that will last forever with God as their God and with the people as God's people. And this promise of a great kingdom made to Abraham was going to come true through a son born to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac is that son. This kingdom that God talked to Abraham about would would be numerous and it would be greatly blessed. The land that this kingdom would dwell on would be more wonderful than you or I can imagine. The people of this kingdom would be used by God to bring great blessing to the world. With our New Testament glasses on, we can look back at the Old Testament and see that this great kingdom that was promised to Abraham was the people of God, the church. Uh, it's those, those people saved by grace through faith from the days of, of Adam and Eve to the very last person who saved when the Lord Jesus comes back. Jesus is the great king of this kingdom. He's the one who gave his life for every one of its citizens. We know that it is through these people that God is blessing the world as the church takes the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. We know that the true promised land is not some strip of land in the Middle East, but it's the new heavens and the new earth to which we are headed by the grace of God. All of these promises that were made in shadow form to Abraham and we see in their fulfillment in the New Testament, all of them come true through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaac was the man from whose line the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And so Isaac is the son of promise. We're also reminded in verse 20 that Isaac has a wife, a woman named Rebekah. Back in Genesis 24, we, we saw the faithfulness of Abraham's servant as that servant went and found Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. We saw the providential way in which this servant was led to Rebekah. We saw at the end of Genesis 24 that Isaac loved Rebekah and that through her he found comfort after his mother's death. So Isaac is the son of Abraham. He is the wife of Rebekah. We come to verse 21 and this very pleasant picture of the happiness of Isaac and Rebekah hits something of a pothole. It's more than a pothole. It's it's a trial in their lives that had to be emotionally uh, devastating. Uh, Rebekah is barren. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, my message both this morning and this evening is broken up into three parts centered around the three facts of verse 21. Uh, Fact number one, Rebecca was barren. Fact number two, Isaac prayed for her. And fact number three, the Lord answered Isaac's prayer. So those are the three things we see in verse 21. Those are the three points that we're going to kind of hang on this morning and this evening. Uh, Everything I'm about to explain and and say and apply is bringing those historical facts to bear on us and what we should learn from them. 
At the end of Genesis 24, everything seemed to be so perfect for Isaac and Rebekah. I mean, God had clearly, evidently brought them together. They were made for one another. We're told that Isaac loved his wife and and found comfort in her. What what wife does not want to be loved? And what husband does not want a wife who who is truly a delight to his soul? This is what Isaac and Rebekah have. Things seem to be going great in this marriage. And then we get to Genesis 25 and verse 21. We learn that Rebecca is barren. Can you imagine the disappointment that built up day after day, week after week, year after year in the hearts of this couple? You see, their dream of a, of a happy family was crumbling around them as each year passed and no child came. This had to be particularly hard on Rebecca because in that culture, a woman's value was, was so bound to her ability to produce a child for her husband. Um, they did not have the extensive scientific knowledge that we have about such things. Uh, so undoubtedly, there were many women who bore the shame of being barren in those ancient times when it was actually probably the husband who was physically incapable. But whatever the case was, barrenness was seen as a a shameful thing in that Old Testament culture. And in Rebecca's case, the the shame of barrenness was only multiplied by everything else that was happening around them and before them. She had to have been well aware that God had promised certain things about her husband Isaac. Namely, that a multitude was going to come from him. God had talked to Abraham about his descendants through Isaac being like the number of stars in the sky. Even when she had left her home to go be Isaac's wife, her own family had sung out to her this blessing. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. So there's all this pressure And now 20 years have passed. And she is still childless. This passage should remind us of the reality that we live in a fallen world. God created man and woman to be able to multiply. He he gave that blessing and commanded us to be fruitful. He gave us the institution of marriage in order to to properly carry out this, this commission of multiplication But in these post-fall days, sin has made things much harder and much more twisted. In our own society, one in three couples are either unable to conceive or face great difficulty in doing so. Miscarriages are very common. Many children are born with health defects of various kinds. The kind of hurt that Isaac and Rebekah experienced during these decades of barrenness was a very real kind of hurt that very real couples in our society deal with. And it's because of sin. It's a part of the effects of sin in our world. It it should remind us that sin is not some small thing to be trifled with. Here in all its ugly colors is a picture of what sin does. It destroys, it damages Now, this was undoubtedly a a real test of Isaac's faith, as well as Rebekah's. Because, you see, here is a man who was born of a barren woman. 
So would he believe in the same God who worked a miracle in his own dad and mom's life in order for him to be there? Would he share the faith of his parents? Isaac and Rebekah were chosen by God to be ancestors to the Messiah. Talk about an awesome privilege. Ancestors to the Messiah himself. And yet, God still chose to bring this trial of barrenness into their lives. Now, if this was true for them, I would ask you, church, should we be surprised when trials come into our lives too? One lesson that we should learn from this account is that hard times and closed doors are not a sign that God cares little for you. These things are not a sign that God does not have great plans for you. Difficult seasons, even lifelong obstacles, are no indication that you are not His or that He does not intend to bless you greatly. In fact, often it's the other way around. When we see trials, we ought to see the love of God. Because God disciplines those He loves. He brings trials and tribulations into the lives of His children because He loves them and because He intends to do much good both for them and through them. All people, believers, unbelievers, everyone, faces struggles and hardships. For God's children, we can be sure that our trials have been carefully crafted. They have been designed for us. Each and every trial has been chosen for us by our God in order to do our souls good. They have been carefully measured. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Dear Christian, Is there a dream of yours that God has taken away from you? Is there some great desire of your life to which He has said, No, my child, that is not my will for you. Let me urge you to see that behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Don't be like Job's wife who counseled him to curse God and die. Rather, when troubles and trials and obstacles come, be like Job who said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Though God kills me, I will believe it's for my good and an act of his love and I will rest in him. You see, God is wise and good and all his ways towards his children are love, whether we see it yet or not. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think God brought this particular trial into the life of Isaac and Rebekah? Why do you think this trial came into their lives? I think this quote from James Dixon sums it up nicely. He says, The problem for humans is that we have this unique capacity for crediting ourselves, for worshiping nature, and for not seeing the work of God. It is critical that the whole of salvation history be clearly pointing to God as the only source of redemption. Rebecca's barrenness is not a practical joke that God is playing. 
It is the great wisdom of God who discerns our tendency to fail to understand the need for His work in our lives. Salvation must be known as totally the work of God, not the work of mankind. And so even here, towards the very beginning of the history of salvation, God must be the one who opens the wombs of mothers for the children to be born who will make up the Savior's line, climaxing in the incarnation, the greatest miracle birth of all. In other words, put maybe a little more simply, God brought this trial into Isaac and Rebekah's life, not only for their sakes, but for yours and mine, as we have it recorded for us in the Word of God. Their trial reminds us that all of salvation, including the very coming of the Messiah, was brought about by the work and the power of God. So that when we think about salvation and help and rest and security and all the things we need, we are not to look to mankind. We are not to look to ourselves. We're not to look to normal biological processes. We are to look to God. We are to depend on Him. We are to rest on Him because He is the accomplisher of our redemption. It is God who is the Savior of our souls through Jesus Christ. Now, The second thing we see in verse 21 is that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. We're not told anything else about how Isaac responded during these 20 years of Rebekah's barrenness. Was he discouraged or was he hopeful? Was he full of confidence even 20 years later that God was going to do what he said? Or had he begun to doubt? We don't know. The questions are left unanswered. But we do know this. In the midst of the hardship, he prayed to the Lord for his wife. Now this tells us that Isaac had learned from his father the practice of intercessory prayer. Because here is a practice that that we have already seen was very present in the life of Isaac's dad. Do we not remember how Abraham interceded for the city of Sodom? How he pleaded with God not to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Abraham said to God, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And God had responded, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham continued to intercede. He he asked God about 45, about 40, about 30. What if only 20 are found? Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. You see, Abraham knew what it was to wrestle with God on behalf of others. And we have good reason to believe that he taught this practice to his son, In fact, turn back to Genesis 18, and I'll show you why I think we can say that. Look back at Genesis 18, beginning in verse 17. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, God specifically tells us in the pages of Scripture that part of His purpose in Abraham's life was that Abraham would teach his children and his household what it looks like to follow God and do right. Therefore, we have every reason to believe that he taught his household, including Isaac, how to pray and how to pray for others. And I would say that this is a call for us. For all of us in this room who who are heads of our households. Here's a a call for all of us in this room who, who have children and grandchildren. Those who have nephews and those who have nieces. Are we teaching our little ones how to pray? And are we teaching our little ones how to pray for others? How can we say that we love others if we do not pray for them? Doesn't real love want what is best for someone? And is it not true that our God is able to do more good in the lives of those we care about than any other person in the universe? How could you say that you love someone when you have a connection to the king of the world and fail to make use of that connection when the someone that you love is in need? Especially when the king has commanded you to bring the needs of others to him. You see, we can talk with our little ones all day long about loving other people, but it's in teaching them how to pray for other people that we begin to show them what real love looks like. It's when we're willing to take time and energy to go before the throne of grace and to wrestle with God on behalf of others. That's real love in action. This is how Isaac loved his wife. We can do more to show love after we pray, but there's nothing better we can do until we've prayed. Are our children learning the art of intercessory prayer? And church, are we living that out in our own lives? I'm going to dwell on this for just a few more moments because I fear that too often we dismiss intercessory prayer as some minor duty, some small sideline part of the Christian life. And if we think that way, I fear we are gravely mistaken. I want to show you something. Look with me at 1 Timothy 2 and let me show you something there. This, this really struck me this week. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You see, in 1 Timothy, Paul is is giving instructions to Timothy about how he is to lead the church in Ephesus and the kinds of things that he is to teach to that church. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy is is made up of these introductory words to to Timothy himself. But when we get to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul moves to begin telling Timothy the kinds of things that he should be teaching This congregation. And look at the very first thing in chapter 2 that Paul says for Timothy to do. Look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now he goes on to talk about praying for kings, about people in authority, and that's important. But we don't need to just immediately run there and miss this, this word, this phrase, all people. Right? Notice, notice that, that Paul said this is first of all. Right? Of all the things Timothy should be urging Christians to do, of all the things Timothy should be doing to shepherd this congregation, Paul says this is first of all. And he doesn't even suggest this. He, he urges this. He says, I urge you. This is of importance. You remember how Jesus went into the temple and and drove out the money changers with a whip and and turned over tables. And Jesus said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Think about that. God's house, His temple, is to be a house of prayer. Folks, the physical temple is gone. Where is the temple of God today? Where is God's house of prayer? Is it not us? The New Testament says that we as individuals are temples of God and more often says that we collectively and corporately are the temple of God. So both individually in our Christian lives and corporately as a church, we are to be a house of prayer. A prayer for who? For all people. Isaac prayed for his wife. And we too should pray especially for those that are closest to us. You you remember Job getting up early in the morning to to go offer burnt offerings for each and every one of his children. And Job would intercede in the morning before God saying, it may be that my children have sinned and that they've cursed God in their hearts. You see, it's so important that we learn to pray, especially for those closest to us, for our family members. That's that's love. But we don't stop there. All people means all people. We're to pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what we see Jesus doing, particularly in in that great prayer of John 17, in which He he prays for the church, both of His generation and for future generations. You and I should pray often for the church of God, for our local church and for the church universal. We should pray often for our local church because it's it's the particular body uh, locally that we're a part of. When a part of your physical body is injured, how does it affect the rest of you? If you cut a finger, does it not cause you grief and discomfort? Well, the Bible says that in a local church, we are members of one another. That together we make up one body and that when one part is hurting, it should grieve the rest of us. Just as you would care for that part of your physical body that is wounded or injured, we should be drawn to care for those in our local body who are hurting or grieving. And this means taking their needs before our Father in prayer. How often are we quicker to criticize a brother or sister? To look down upon them in our hearts rather than to take their issues to God in prayer. Our our instincts are so backwards. As as born-again Christians, it should now be natural for us to immediately go to God in prayer when we observe or, or learn of difficulties in a brother or sister's life. 
It should be so unnatural, completely out of character for us to condemn them or to, or to talk to others about them rather than going to the Lord in prayer first. In fact, doesn't our own experience teach us that taking time to pray for one another has a way of, of settling down our emotions and causing anger or jealousies to dissipate and tensions to be eased. It is easier to be patient with someone, easier to love them, easier to forgive them. It is easier to be persistent and forbearing with them when we know that we are consistently praying for them. Intercessory prayer is a wonderful gift to a church family. After praying for our own church family, though, we should pray for our brothers and sisters who are connected to other local churches and those missionaries who are seeking to plant new churches around the world. And we should not hesitate to pray for the lost. Jesus prayed for the very people who were crucifying Him as they were crucifying Him. We too should pray for the enemies of Christ's church, those who hate God, those who work against God's cause. We should pray for their salvation. We should not forget what an awesome privilege intercessory prayer is. I want you to think about something with me. We, we often talk of Jesus in, in His three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Yet you and I as Christians have also been granted a part in those offices. We participate with Jesus in His priestly office, His prophetic office, His kingly office. So for example, Jesus is a prophet. And we call Jesus a prophet because He speaks God's Word to us. He, he speaks it to us and yet He uses means to do so. He uses the Bible to do so. He uses people to do so. You see, you and I are to be prophets, so to speak. We are to be ambassadors of God who speak His truth to others. Jesus fulfills His prophetic office through His people speaking truth to one another. Whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in a restaurant, whether it's on Facebook, we speak truth. We are prophets underneath the head prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true for the kingly office of Christ as well. Right? Jesus is the king of kings. He, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. Yet Jesus carries out His dominion through His people. It's not the only way He does it, but it's one way He does it. We reign with Christ. Now today, that reigning looks different. We're, we're pilgrims passing through this world. We're, we're trying to rescue as many as we can from this dying world. But we're headed towards a new heavens and a new earth. And God will give us the same commission at the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth that He gave to us at the beginning of this old earth. Namely, go out and have dominion for my glory. Do good with the earth. Reflect my image in the way you use it. And even today, dear Christians, and the way we carry out our duties, and the way we, we act in our vocations, we are preparing for those future days. Jesus is accomplishing His sovereign purposes through us. You may not feel like it right now, dear Christian, but according to the Bible, you are a king or a queen in the kingdom of God. You reign with Jesus Christ. 
But hopefully you see where this is going. Not only are we a prophet with Jesus in His prophetic office, not only are we kings with Jesus in His kingly office, but we are also priests with Christ in His priestly office. You ever heard the phrase, the priesthood of the believer? Sometimes it gets twisted and made into something it's not. Here's what it really means. At this very moment, Jesus is our great high priest. He is interceding for us before the Father. And He calls you and I to intercede for others. Think about it this way. Every time you pray for someone, you are passing that plea for God to do good to that person. You are passing that plea into the hands of Christ. Christ then makes that prayer pure and holy, washed in His blood, and then He presents it before His Father. His Father hears that prayer, and in His sovereign love and wisdom, He responds rightly. He responds appropriately according to His sovereign will. We get to participate in the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ by our prayers for others. Just as the Old Testament high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and ask God to be merciful and kind to the people of Israel, so now you and I have been given free access to the throne of God. We are not to go before God's throne the way uh, the scarecrow and tin man and cowardly lion and Dorothy tried to come before Oz full of fear and terror, wanting to turn and run away. No, we are to approach a very gracious God through Jesus Christ and we're allowed to approach Him with boldness. We're commanded to approach Him with boldness. Our God is a mighty God. We should fear Him. We should reverence Him. But through Jesus Christ, He is also our Father and dare I say it, even our friend. And so we are called to go into the throne room the way the great high priest was called to enter the Holy of Holies. But why are we to go? Are we to go before the throne room into the presence of God only to bring petitions for ourselves? No. The Bible calls us to go before the throne of grace to intercede for others. Remember how Esther went into the throne room of King Ahasuerus and interceded before him for her people. If she was willing to risk her neck to go before that sinful king uninvited... Why will we not go before the one who is full of mercy, loves to bless, and invites us to come? William Law said that he who has learned to pray has learned the greatest secret of a holy, happy life. Have you learned to pray? And have you learned to pray for all people? Are you a person of intercessory prayer the way Isaac was for Rebekah? Justin, there's, there's no time for this kind of prayer. There, there's so many people in my life, so many things to pray for, so many issues to be brought before God's throne. I don't have the time. Well, dear friend, when the all-powerful King of the universe gives you a hearing and urges you to bring the needs of others before Him, do you not come at all because you don't have time to bring everyone's needs before Him? Should you not at least bring to Him what you can? Yes, God wants you to be faithful in all your callings. We are not supposed to spend every moment of every day on our knees. 
But does that mean we're to spend no time? Does the fact that you cannot intercede for everyone you know mean that you shouldn't intercede for anyone at all? Also, does not the Bible tell us to pray without ceasing? In other words, all throughout our day, as we're fulfilling our callings, we're to live in the spirit of prayer, regularly praying to God, offering up praises and confessions and thanksgivings and and all of these other kinds of prayer, but also intercessions. What a wonderful habit to get into where as you encounter people throughout your day, you whisper up prayers to God on their behalf. How many people might you bless this week if you try and form that habit? You say you're too busy to pray. Luther said with everything he had going on, he was too busy not to pray. He said he knew that all his busyness would amount to little and do little good to the people he was caring for. If he was not on his knees asking God to bless. John Welsh was an incredible example of prayer. Spending some seven hours a day in prayer. We're not all called to do that. We're not all capable, frankly, of doing that. But he spent seven hours a day in concentrated prayer. He said, I wonder how a Christian can lie in bed all night and not rise to pray. Joel Beakey tells us that he kept a robe close to his bed because a night seldom passed when he did not get up in the night to spend time with God in his private room. His wife would wake up after midnight and he will be out, out of bed in his room praying, often weeping and afraid that he would get a cold. She would call him back to bed and he would say, Oh, my dear wife, I have the souls of 3,000 people to answer for and I know not how it is with many of them. You see, for those of us who are in positions of authority, whether it's the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the workplace, wherever God has given you authority, intercessory prayer should be front and center in the carrying out of your duties. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the head of the church. And one of the primary ways that He cares for the people who are under Him is by interceding for us before the Father. So this is a huge part of leading with love. Now, I know I've hit hard on this this morning, but I think it's a subject that, that we've perhaps touched on too lightly in the past. We're too quick to forget that, that God can do more in one second than we can do if all of us were combined and all of our lifetimes were combined. We still could not come close to what God could do in one second if He chose to. There are many who have gone before us, who have learned this lesson about the importance of prayer and especially intercessory prayer. J. Sidlow Baxter said, Men may spurn our appeals. They may reject our message. They may oppose our arguments. They may despise our persons. But they are helpless against our prayers. Charles Spurgeon is famously credited as saying, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten people to preach. In other words, here is the best way for you and I to be useful in the kingdom of God. Here is a key and important way for us to be a blessing to people both that we know and people that we don't know. There are other ways that are good. There are other ways that should not be neglected in showing love to others. But this one is first of all. Andrew Bonar wrote in his diary, I have learned by experience that it is not much labor, but much prayer that is the only means to success. So, maybe we're 
convinced and convicted by Isaac's example. And we're resolved to be more faithful in this matter of praying for others. How do we do it? When we pray for others, what should we be praying for? Well, our Savior has not left us to guess. Throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the New Testament, we are taught both by command and by example the kinds of things that we should pray for when interceding for others. If you want to grow in this area, I especially recommend that you take some time and look through the epistles of Paul. Study the prayers of Paul in the New Testament letters. See how he prayed for each church. See the kinds of things that he prayed for for each church. You'll see a lot about the kind of things that it's good and helpful to pray for, for others. I would also remind you of the Lord's Prayer. You see, when Jesus was teaching His followers to pray, He taught them to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. In other words, the Lord's Prayer doesn't just teach us how to pray for ourselves. The Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray for the purposes of God, but it also tells us what to pray for others that we're praying for. We aren't just to pray for our daily bread. My daily bread. We're to pray for ours, right? We're to pray that the physical needs of others would be met. We aren't just to pray that, that, that my sins would be forgiven, but that the sins of others would be forgiven, that people would be saved. We aren't just to pray that, that I won't be overcome by temptation, right? That, that I will not be uh, uh, captured by the evil one. Rather, we are to pray these things for others. If intercessory prayer is new to you, this is something that that you should be excited about because there there is wonderful blessings that come in doing intercessory prayer. God does much to sanctify us when we participate in this privilege. And so I would recommend that you go to the Lord's Prayer first. Let that kind of be your guide. Pray for your family like Isaac did. Pray for your your church family. and Pray for God's people around the world. Pray for the lost, both the lost that you encounter every day and and the lost nations of our world. Pray for places like Somalia and all that's happening there and this corrupt transitional government that was supposed to have already set up a new constitution and they haven't and they're two years behind schedule and there's militant Islamic folks that are trying to keep that from happening and the gospel is almost nowhere to be found in that country. These are the kinds of things that you may not know a soul in Somalia but your prayers can be effective. You can have a part. And the number one thing God is doing today, saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and you can do it from the couch in your living room. It's an awesome thing. It's an incredible privilege. It's something we should take advantage of. I would only remind you that Christ died to give us this privilege. It did not come to us cheaply. It comes to us freely. But it was paid for at a great price that you and I would be priests unto God who could have such privileges. So Mount Hermon, I would encourage us this morning to learn from Isaac. Let us be a people of prayer. And we'll see more about this tonight. Let's pray.
I would just ask all of us now to take a few moments and uh, to talk to the Father privately and just to ask what, what needs to change in my thinking or my action.